First Timothy chapter 2, uh, I'll work through verses 1 through 7 this morning. Uh, two things I see the more and more I read scripture, I just see it show up all the time. Uh, one thing is God does whatever he pleases. You're going to see that from Genesis all the way to Revelation. God does whatever he pleases. The second thing I see is that Jesus Christ alone is who saves. And so those two things uh, really be, should make us more humble, uh, want to worship him more, become more obedient to his plan for our lives in the scripture. And so I think if you grab these things, I think you can become uh, more mature as a believer. And so that means you're going to have to go to some hard places in scripture to gain maturity in Christ. And so what, what, I've, never, what I've never forgotten is this time in high school to where I was, I was doing um, missions work in Chicago. I, I went up to Chicago with my, uh, with my student ministry that I was involved in at the time. And I went up there and we were, basically the whole purpose of the conference is so that we would learn how to share our faith. And, and what we would do is we would go, come into this large rally, and there'd be worship songs, and there would be messages, and we would leave encouraged, and we're going to go and win Chicago for Jesus. And I'll, I'll never forget, uh, we, what we do is go into the inner city during the day, and that's really difficult if you're from the south, you're going and speaking to the inner city Chicago people, and that's what I was doing at that time. And uh, we were going in, and we were going, you know, door-to-door evangelism, what happens, you know, do you know what happens if you die tomorrow, you know, that, those kinds of weird questions that you really shouldn't ask. Um, but I did, and just went through the whole deal. And I remember coming back, and we would do the rally again, hear the message again. And then afterwards, we would break up into small groups, and we would have a, a gathering time with our, just the group that we came with. And, and I would never forget, like, one of the things that would op- often open up with was somebody saying, um, okay, how many people did you lead the Lord today? And we would all say, well, I, I five or four or whatever, and this is what the Lord did. This is a conversation that I had. This is a, uh, a person that I chatted with for an hour around the gospel. And I'll never forget this one girl. She, she was really excited to share. Right away, he said, uh, how many people did you lead to Christ today? What stories do we have? And she was like, oh, oh, oh. And you know, he called on her and she says, well, I, I think, I think I led four people to Christ. And we're like, what do you mean you think? Well, Elizabeth helped me with one of them. And since she didn't win anyone to Christ this week, I figured I would give the one that she helped me with to her. And I remember thinking, that doesn't sound right. I don't know why, but I just don't think that is the way that it works. And the more and more I, I, I began thinking about that, I was like, you know, first of all, I was like, you arrogant. You know, like that was my first thought. But the more and more I read scripture, the more and more I see that sharing the gospel doesn't have a lot to do with us. All right? The more and more I read scripture, I I see this picture of the father and his love for his precious son that he would herald among all nations, that all nations would see the beauty and the majesty and the glory of his son. And so when I see this big picture in front of me, that the whole Bible's really about how God the Father wants to display his love to the Son, I sit back and I say, oh, he's just allowed me to be a part of it. I've never won anyone to Christ. I've never shared the gospel and said, well, I really did that. No, it's a big picture that God has invited me to come to. I'm his child, and he's allowed me to be part of his work. 
And so I think when you understand God rightly, you understand his mission rightly. When you understand the mission of God, your entire perspective ought to change. So your mission is birthed from your understanding and your love for the God that created you. And so this then should change your perspective in that you don't become just an Americanized Christian. You don't become a slave to Christian culture. You see the gospel as a global impact. You become a world Christian. You become a person who wants every nation, every representative from every nation to come to know Christ. It becomes a part of you because it's a part of who he is. And so one of the things I've seen here in Ephesus And this is where 1 Timothy comes into play. Paul is writing a letter to his young disciple, Timothy. Timothy's a young pastor in this really difficult place called Ephesus. Ephesus is a place that Paul planted earlier prior, and they blew up. Whole continent of Asia has never seen anything like this. But the problem was they began to dumb down the message of the gospel. They began to change the content of the gospel And what happened was the people became proud and arrogant, and then they began to think they were the only people that existed. And they became selfless, selfish, and inward-focused. They began to think they were special. And so what Paul does in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when he's beginning to restore the content of the gospel in chapter 1, he then goes into the practical implications of what the gospel should do in chapter 2. And so what he does is he gives a pastoral prayer over the church. He, he begins to pray uh, in such a way that he wants the church to pray in that way. I don't know if you know this, but the way I pray, I pray in such a way that I'm trying to train you, Integrity Church, how to pray If you've ever been around someone for a while, you begin to pray like them. Have you noticed that? You begin to say certain things that they say. This is what Paul wants to mimic the church. So he, honestly, he kind of writes a pastoral prayer here. And if you've grew up in church, maybe somewhere between the offering and the special music, you may get the pastoral prayer. Pastor comes up, he's got a bulletin in his hand, he flips it over. Where are the prayer needs? We're going to pray for Miss Susie's leg, and we're going to pray for hit, you know, this surgery that's coming up. And some of those prayers are very good. Some of them are kind of crazy, right? Got to pray for Marie's cat. Marie's cat's sick. She, the, the, the vet, we don't know what to do. Let's pray. And then it's a whole list of things. And so sometimes pastoral prayers are good, sometimes they're not. But what he's trying to do here is he's not trying to focus on really the issues that are going on among them. He's trying to get them to pray missionally. This is why it's so different. He wants his church to pray missionally. So if they're inward focused and you're trying to train them to pray in this way, it is very impactful. Y'all awake this morning? All right, good. So let's look at what he prays here, chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places, that we may lead a peaceful, quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 
Now, this is strange, is it not? Because when you look at chapter 1, he then goes right into telling young Timothy, get rid of false teachers. Chapter 2, he says, first of all. Now, okay, I thought you just had a a chapter before chapter 2. It seems like you would put first of all in chapter 1, right? But first of all is in chapter 2. Why is he saying it? Was he saying an order? No. He's not saying a specific order. He's rather saying, this is what is most important. First of all, this is what I want you to do, church. And so it's very interesting because what he's doing is he's helping this church understand what worship is. First of all, let us as a body of believers commune with the God that created us. And some people might argue, well, the goal of the church is to evangelize and share uh, the gospel to lost people. Absolutely. That is one of the goals. But the primary goal of the church is worship. It's the worship of God. That is primary. And this is what Paul is saying here. First of all, let us commune with, talk to, pray to the Father. That's the primary goal. That's what we're going to fix our eyes on, first of all. You might say, well, is worship, what is worship? Well, sometimes we think worship is singing. I think worship leaders for years have hijacked. We say, okay, we're going to pray, and now we're going to worship. Like as if prayer is disconnected from worship. Right now, what we are doing by hearing the word of God, by proclaiming the word of God, this is worship. Worship is not singing, even though singing is worship. It's not all that it is. Uh, Worship is when people came early this morning to help set up. Them them serving the body of Christ was their worship. Uh, Worship is the people over there volunteering to help the children uh, hear the gospel and the good news of Jesus. Uh, Worship is Later, I will ask you to respond through giving. Giving is an act of worship. Worship is when we come together and we take communion. Worship is later when we have a membership class and we're not even meeting at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. When we're meeting later to discuss what it means to become a member and we're gathering, then we'll have a meal after that and we'll fellowship. That's all entitled to worship. Worship should encompass every aspect of our life that would ultimately to push us to the glory and the honor and the praise of our God. Worship is everything for a believer. The food that you eat is an act of worship to God. It's stewardship to God. The money that you spend, it's a stewardship to God. It's an act of worship to God. And so what Paul wants to do is restore the idea of worship so that if they get worship first, then he pushes mission on them. They say, oh, mission's not about who I win or who I don't win. It's about me going and sharing the gospel, not to get numbers, but to worship you. Very different than how I grew up. Very different. I remember when Jesus told the disciples, you're going to go to this certain place, and everyone that you go to, that you share to the gospel to, they will not listen to the gospel, but go. That seems useless, does it not? Not if you understand it at worship first. If it's worship first, you say, I don't care who responds, I'm going to go. Because the God of the universe has brought me to that place. So worship is sharing the gospel. So Paul tells him to pray, but he tells him how to pray. Look in the second part of verse 1. 
I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high places, high positions, that we may lead a, a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, that is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. You see how evangelistic this is? It flows from this idea of worship him first, then it flows to us being sent out in on mission for him. Very evangelistic prayer. And what you see, he says, all people. Now we'll explain what that means here in a moment. But the second thing we see, he says, for kings and all who are in high positions, that they may lead peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So what exactly is Paul praying for when he says that? Godly and peaceful lives? This does not sound like Paul. Did he take a break and did somebody write this for him? This does not seem like something that Paul did or would ever advocate. As a matter of fact, he says in 2 Timothy 2, 3, 12, uh, 2 Timothy um, 3, 12, it says this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, wait a minute. I thought you said godly and peaceful life in chapter, in 1 Timothy, but now 2 Timothy, you're saying everyone's going to be persecuted who does this. What's he saying? When he says this, what is, what's he doing here when he says this? Well, here, here's what Paul is saying to this church when he wants to pray in this way. He's saying, we we need to pray that the kings and the authorities wouldn't persecute us, not so that we would avoid persecution, but so that we can continue to make much of Jesus. We need to pray in such a way that God would free us up more so that we can continue to spread the gospel. When's the last time you prayed for that? I cannot think the last time. God, would you just free me of my financial burden so that I can be freed up more to share the gospel? God, would you just free me of this stress in my life so that I can be freed up more to share the gospel? God, would you just lighten my workload, not because I want to avoid work, but so that I would be more free to share the gospel? And this is what he's praying. God, the, you, the king's and the authorities would lay off of the Christians so that we can continue to have house churches and meetings so that we can continue to share the gospel. That's the goal of what we're asking. And then in verse 3 through verse 7, we see something very interesting. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. For there is one God and there is one Mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for, there's that word again, all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this was appointed a preacher, an apostle. I am telling the truth and I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, this verse does not seem complicated when you read it, but it, it is. He says, God desires all people to be saved. That's his moral will, that he, all people 
would be saved. Now, true or false? God does whatever he pleases, right? Good, thank you. He does whatever he pleases. We know that. Okay, if he says all people will be saved, why aren't all people saved? Is that problematic for anybody? Okay, just me. Good. Well, I'll just talk this to myself. All right. Okay, since it's true that he desires all people to be saved, why are there so many people going to hell? I mean, Jesus says it himself. Matthew 7, verse 13, he says this. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is, what's the word? Narrow. And the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are what? Few. Wait a minute, I thought he wanted all people to be saved. I thought God does whatever he wants. Is this problematic or what? I mean, this is very difficult. Okay, so if God is God and does whatever he pleases and desires all people to be saved, why aren't more people saved? Or let's ask it another way. If God wants every person to be saved, and since we know that everyone is not saved, does that make him less powerful? Does that make him less God? We need to figure this out, right? Don't you sense some urgency to figure this out? Good. Five of you excited about this. <laughs> Amen. All right. Because the question is this, does, has he allowed people to fall through the cracks? Has, has God failed in some way? Is Satan, is this sort of this dualistic arm wrestling match where Satan looks like he's winning now because, man, he seems like he's got a lot more converts on his side. Is that the case? I mean, God even says at the end, there's going to be more people in hell than more people in heaven. But he says, I desire all people to be saved. So we probably got to figure out what that word means when we see all people because we can't be universalists. We know that not everyone's going to heaven, right? Sorry, Rob Bell, not everyone's going to heaven, all right? So we got to figure out what this means. So when, when you have a difficult passage, here, here's some rules, all right? You have to look at the context. You have to look at what the author, who is Paul in this scenario, is saying. What is his intent in this passage? The second thing you might have to do is you might have to look at some other passages. So we're going to do both this morning. We're going to look at other passages because you don't want to base everything that you believe on one passage of Scripture. That's how heretics are born, by the way. So you got to look at context and other passages. So first of all, let's look at the context. Verse 6, what do we see in verse 6? Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So he's given this idea that Jesus Christ is the only mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Verse 5. So he is the mediator, meaning every person who must be saved, must be redeemed by the Father who's created them, needs to come through one person. Who is that person? Jesus. Jesus is that person. He is the mediator between God and man, which means there's no saints that you have to go through. There's no other people. There's no priests that you have to go through. You only go through Christ to be saved. If you say, well, what about other religions? Well, he says 
only one mediator. So it's a one mediator issue that we see here. The second thing in verse 7, he says this, For I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth and I'm not lying. I love that. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So Paul, who's a former Jew, comes into this church in Asia, plants this church, and now they are beginning to act just like his former Jews. They begin to think they are elitist. They're special. And what, God, what Paul's doing here is saying, no, we should be about the Gentiles, the non-Jews. What he's saying is the gospel is for the nations. If you look in Revelation 6, 5, 6, and 7, all three chapters, you're going to see this consistent reminder to believers that out of every nation, there will be representatives of believers. There will be remnants, meaning small, of believers. Chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 of Revelation. And so Paul's saying this, look, I don't want to convert you to be like a Jew. I want to convert you to be like a Christian. And when you're a Christian, you begin to care and burden and pray for and, and agonize over lost people who are dying and going to hell across the globe. And you want to see every tribe, tongue, and nation pray and cry out to the God that created them. So we have, there's one mediator between God and man, that man's Jesus. Then you have a global scope of mission that we would have a heart to bring the gospel to every nation. And so Paul's intent in this passage is that they would see God rightly and that they would see mission rightly. And so what's God's mission? Well, the first thing he says, he says, first of all, that we would pray in this way. And then he says that we would pray, verse 1, for all people. And that seems so simple when you read it, but it's kind of difficult, is it not? What if I got up this morning and I said, the mission of Integrity Church is to pray for every single person in the world. We're going to do that this morning before you leave. We've got a list of every person in the world, and we are going to pray for every single person by name. And when they die, when another one's born, you better get caught up, right? We're just, we're just always praying for every single person. Is he really meaning every single person? Or is he praying that we pray for a lot of people? How do we figure this out? So we've got to figure out what all means because it's an important word because it shows up in three different times here about critical mass. Pray for all people, that he desires all people to be saved, that Jesus Christ was a ransom for all people. So we have to figure out what it means. So here's what we have to do. We've already explained the context. God, the context of the passage is Paul desires that they would see God rightly and they would see mission rightly. So what do we do now? We've got to go to other places in Scripture. So let me just show you the other places in Scripture that will help you when we see the word all. Mark chapter 1, verse 5. This is Jesus going uh, village to village, talking about the kingdom of God. This is what it says. Mark chapter 1, verse 5. It says, And all... The country and Judea, Judea and all Jerusalem were out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It's about John the baptizer, by the way. All the country of Judea. 
So every single person, do we interpret it that way when we see it? Every single person in Judea went out to hear. They got, you know, there's a sick old man upstairs. We've got to pull him out and roll him out here. Oh, every single baby, every single child, every single man, woman, and child. Is that the way we would see that? Well, certainly not. Seeing a whole bunch of people. And you see the next one, John 8, 2. This is Jesus. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And what's the word? What's the word? All the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. He taught every single person? Is that the way we would see that? No, he's talking about a large number of people. He's saying Jesus has a critical mass. We wouldn't read anything else that way. If you tell all people, you wouldn't think, think every person in the world came and heard Jesus. You wouldn't think that way. Okay, let me just talk practically here, not even as a pastor, but as a human being who's married and has children. One thing that I know about being married is this. You don't say always and never, all right? Never, there it is. Never say, never say always and never, all right? Here's what my wife does. I have massive ADD. That's the joke, but I think I actually do. Um, driving to Raleigh, I, if someone invents a teleporter, I will pay, I will go into debt for it. Because driving to Raleigh is like driving to hell for my wife. She cannot stand 264. There's like no gas stations between Greenville, Wilson. You better gas up. You better be ready. The radio stations are terrible. It's all country music. It's just terrible. And trying to get her. And she says this over and over again. You never pay attention to traffic. Okay, is that true? No, it can't be true. I got my license. I paid attention to traffic at some point in my life. I've gotten in a few wrecks. But most of the time, I'm batting pretty good. I've got, my batting average is like 900 and something. I don't get in wrecks very often. And last one I was in was... Six years ago. That's a pretty good... So I pay attention to traffic sometimes. So maybe a better thing she could say is, sometimes you don't pay attention to traffic. That's accurate. That's an accurate statement. Or I could say it like this. I always compliment my wife. I always tell you you're beautiful. No, you don't. I'd be going, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful, you're beautiful. Like, I say something else, don't I? So we don't, like, we always never... All, we have to be very careful with those words, even when we see scripture. Because we say all means all, then that means every single person came and heard Jesus. Every single person in Jesus went out to see him. I mean, think about the famous one. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And our American culture has taken it and it becomes on Bible verses and slogans and professional athletes dunk the basketball and say, see, you can do anything, anything you want for God. All things, actually. You want to dunk? You can do that. You want to be a swimming athlete? You can do that. All things? Really? No, it's, it, Paul's not talking about that. He's talking about in suffering or in good times, I can do anything that Christ wants me to do. And so it's not about us doing whatever we want or it's not about every single, every time he says all, it doesn't mean every single person. 
And so I want to show you this because the intent of Paul's writing when he uses the word all is the exact intent that we see in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, Revelation 6, Revelation 7, that there would be a representative of every nation that belongs to Jesus. And it's important that you see this because it lets you see the heart of God. Does God desire every person to come know? Yes, he does, but that's his moral will, his sovereign will plays out much differently because we know that not everyone is in heaven. Let me just show you what Jesus says about his mission. Matthew 20, verse 8, verse 28 says this. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. So if it was really every single person, it would mean every single person. But he says, many. Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, when he's taking the Lord's Supper, he says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So he says here, it's many, not all. Now, this is important that you see, because I want you to know this. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, He died and his blood is enough to cover all the sins of the world. It is, but he only died for those that the father would bring to him. And that is good news. Because there is not one drop of Jesus's blood that is wasted in hell. There is not one drop wasted. And that's beautiful. Okay, let me show you one more. John 10, 14. Jesus says this. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. I want you to see what Jesus says about his people. I know my own and my own know me just in the same way that the father knows me and I know the father. Listen to what he says next. I lay down my life for everyone. No, for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not in this fold. I must Bring them also that they will listen to my voice so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. Who did he lay his life down for? His sheep. Did he lay his life down for wolves? No. Did Did Jesus lay his life down for Judas? No. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay his life down for his friends. And so it's the father's work. He says, my sheep hear my voice. So that means when I'm preaching the gospel week after week after week, I can do a horrible job or a good job, but if it's God who's speaking to you, you will respond. He will open your eyes. You will respond to the gospel. We have incredible confidence in the mission of God. 
that he will do these things. Romans 8, verse 29. We, we, we sing Romans 8, 28, all things, work, all things uh, work together for the good of those who love him and are called into his purpose. One of my favorite verses, but it, it comes off of this idea as well. Verse 29, it says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of, of his son in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, I want you to see this pattern here because it's the Father, Ephesians 1, it's the Father's will of who will respond to the gospel. He, it says, predestines to be conformed to the image of his son. And then he says, not only that, but those who the father predestined, he also called, which means this is the same thing that Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. You see this consistent thing throughout John's gospels. Um, he who has ears, let him hear. He's saying, if you can hear me, you'll hear me. And if you're predestined before the foundation of the world, the father, when he calls you, you will heed his words. Because it's the Spirit of God that is opening your eyes. And he says, those who hear his voice are justified. They're made right before God through the blood of his son, King Jesus. And so we have this powerful mission that those the Father has elected will be saved and will respond to the gospel. And Jesus' blood are for those of whom the Father has elected. There has not been any blood wasted. Some may tell you this stuff, why is this, this is not important. Why is this so important for me to know? Here's why. First of all, it's in the Bible, all right? I believe scripture is sufficient. It's, it's profitable for teaching, correcting, and instruction and in righteousness. So this is good for your soul. It's good to grow you in maturity in Christ, first of all. Second thing is, it's a guarantee that the scope of the gospel is massive. That there will be a guarantee representative from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And not only that, you always argue, what about the man on the island who never heard and he, he just woke up and he's in the middle of the island and he's by himself. What do we do with that? Well, if the father has chosen him before the foundation of the world, here's what Paul is saying throughout Romans 8. This is what he's saying throughout the rest of scripture. This is what Jesus Christ himself said. He will get the gospel. There's never been anyone who died and went to hell and Jesus went, oh, shucks, I really missed that one. Man, I wish I was paying closer attention. I wish I could have been more God in that situation. No, he's sovereign over all, which means, and all means all there, by the way, which means that there has never been one that the Father has elected that has slipped through the cracks. They will hear the gospel. Fourthly, I think this is, Important that God's mission isn't about you, but God's mission includes you. If it's about his redeeming work and displaying the beauty of his beautiful son, and he says, I am going to take a group of people, a small group of people, 
in Greenville, North Carolina, to join the love that I have for my, my son and to proclaim it to every tribe, tongue, and nations. And I'm going to use this group to make that happen. We say, man, what a privilege to be a part of the redeeming work of God reconciling people, Jesus reconciling people to the Father. What a privilege. What joy we have. I've used this analogy a hundred times. My boys um, think the world of me. I think that's part of they're just really young and they don't know any better. Um, Finn still thinks I can dunk. And, um, but one of the things that Finn loves to do is he loves to go to work with his dad. He thinks that is such a big deal. And I make a big deal about it. I put my pens out and paper and he has my iPhone and that's his computer or whatever. And he sits across from me and he is so proud to work with his dad. He thinks it's incredible. And I remember my, my dad's here this morning. I love going to work with my dad. I thought I was doing something really important. And there's something so, something about a son who looks up and sees his father working that you get to work with him and you feel like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm big now. I'm big. And what God is doing here is he's saying, I am the one who saves. I am the one who, it's the father who elects. It's Jesus who redeems. It's the spirit who seals into the day that we receive our inheritance. But I'm going to take sinners, redeem them, mold them, make them into mature believers and now I'll, I'll adopt them and call them sons and daughters, call them my children. But not only that, they can go to work with dad. And we're children who get to go to work with our father. And how exciting is that? I remember when Gideon was learning to walk, I would hold him and I would put his feet on my feet. And I would walk just like this. And he, and he would get these big eyes and Jessica would say, you're doing it, you're doing it and clapping. But I would let him go and he'd fall right on his face. <laughs> and what I'm doing is I'm doing it, but he gets the joy of letting daddy work through him. Really, that's what's happening. And so what this does for me, when I see God rightly and I see the mission of God rightly, what this does for me as a believer who's trying and striving to mature. It does this. Ben Tugwell has no reason to be a proud, arrogant person. Ben is just working with his father. He's just doing the father's work. And it's not anything that I've done. It's what the father has already done for me through his son, Jesus. And he's allowing me to go to work with him. And so in the Christian faith, there is no room for arrogant, proud people. A lot of people who believe this are arrogant. Well, they don't understand it right. They don't get it. Because once you get this, this makes you humble. It also makes you thankful. Because when you look at the grace of God in your life and you start to suffer and you start to face, and you know that there are people who died and went to hell and you know that Jesus Christ reached down and opened your eyes and redeemed you through his precious blood, you will see this differently. You'll say, you know what? I'm suffering, I'm going through difficulty, but I'm just thankful that the Father has chosen me and that the Son has redeemed me and the Holy Spirit has sealed me and I'll never lose my salvation. I'll be walking with him in eternity and worship forever, amen. And so it makes us humble, it makes us thankful. 
And it also puts us on mission. Because we pray, God, would you just use me to share the gospel with this person? God, would you just use me and our church to plant more churches? Would God, would you just use Integrity Church that we might be a church that would make much of you in among all nations? Because what's the main objective? Worship, right? We just want to worship you, God. We just want to give honor to your name the best way possible. So that means that every single person in here needs to be active in sharing the gospel because we're worshiping our God and King. So my questions are, are you thankful that Jesus has died for you? Are you thankful that Jesus has died in your place? Are you thankful that before the foundation of the world that the Father chose you? Are you thankful that he allows you to be part of his mission and his work? What a beautiful picture. Let's pray.